Welcome to the Harvard University South Asia Institute's special series on the partition of British India in 1947. In episode five, we will hear from Lucy Chester. She is Associate Professor of History and International Affairs at the University of Colorado and the author of Borders and Conflict in South Asia. Here's part one of her fascinating lecture from spring 2017. Today I'll be talking about the Radcliffe Boundary Commission and more broadly about cartography and conflict and the relationship between them in the partition of India and Pakistan. Um, so as I'm guessing you are all aware, in August of 1947, Britain divided its colonial holdings in South Asia into two states, India and Pakistan. And this partition came after years of Muslim campaigning for the creation of a Muslim homeland. But despite this extensive run-up, the actual partition itself was extraordinarily hasty. British authorities devoted only a few months to the incredibly complex process of dividing hundreds of millions of people politically, economically, militarily, geographically, and so on. Um, and what I'm going to do today is focus on the geographic elements of this division. And the geographic phase of it was even more compressed. The Boundary Commission that was responsible for drawing the line drew about 2,500 miles of boundary in about six weeks. This commission was driven primarily by political goals. It was cloaked in a legal facade. It did not draw on geographical expertise. Instead, it was headed by a British lawyer, a man named Sir Cyril Radcliffe, from which the commission takes its name. Um, and it did rely heavily on maps but almost exclusively on a certain kind of map, on maps that were created to expand and to maintain colonial control, maps that were certainly not created with the intention of dismantling colonial control. So a little bit about methodology. Why focus on maps? Well, first of all, I personally just find them incredibly fascinating. Um, but leaving that aside, the primary source material that's available for the Radcliffe Boundary Commission is extremely limited, in part because Radcliffe destroyed all of his papers. This was part of a lifetime pattern of destroying all of his papers, apparently. It's not something he just did in this particular case. But the fact remains that we don't have, we have very little primary source evidence from Radcliffe himself. Um, a couple, maybe one or two interviews that he gave to somewhat unter unreliable interviewers, um, and a short letter that he wrote to his stepson about how hot the weather was in India. So the maps that Radcliffe used, along with the textual description of the location of the boundary line, um, these are really the main sources available for the actual work of the Boundary Commission. Um, so I rely very heavily on these sources. I've also done interviews with uh, a number of participants and survivors, um, and I've looked, um, of course, for other primary sources generated by other people who, who played a role in the uh, Boundary Commission. So in combination with these other sources, the cartographic material that Radcliffe left us actually provides a, a rich vein of material that illuminates how this boundary was drawn. Um, and most of my slides today will just be maps, um, but to give you a sense for the, the argument that I'm making, I would argue that the maps that were used to propose 
to criticize, to debate, and finally to create Pakistan help us understand the larger partition process more clearly. Specifically, they help us to understand the haste and the effects of the haste of this uh, incredibly compressed process. They help us understand the influence that political goals had on the way that the entire process turned out. Um, they certainly illuminate the really extraordinary lack of geographical and cartographic information um, or expertise. Uh, and they highlight the incredibly tragic results in terms of mass killing and forced migration. So I'll be talking a lot today about the Boundary Commission of 1947, but I want to begin with pre-1947 geographical imaginings of Pakistan and what Pakistan might look like. Um, so beginning in the 30s and, and early 1940s, and I'm going to focus, not exclusively, but focus on material created by the Muslim League, which, as I'm sure you're all aware, was um, a, an explicitly Muslim nationalist party led from the late 1930s onward by Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And this material is important for at least three reasons. Uh, first of all, because the boundaries that were created in August of 1947 meant life or death for millions and millions of people. Um, it's hard to pin down the exact numbers, but at least 500,000 people were killed. Some estimates are much higher. Um, some 12 to 17 million people were forced into exile across these new boundary lines. So it's important, as I say, because it meant life or death for people living in the divided areas. It's also important because geographical definitions of Pakistan and what division might mean were related to bodily imaginings of South Asian territory. In particular, the Hindu concept of Bharat Mata, or Mother India. Um, but also broader ideas of national territory as a body to be operated on, um, losing part of its territorial body in an amputation, or in a phrase that crops up over and over again uh, as a vivisection. And gendered geographical imaginings in particular uh, had really violent implications for real life women and girls living in the divided areas. Uh, tens of thousands of women and girls were raped, forcibly abducted, forcibly married, and or murdered um, during the, the months immediately around partition. So in other words, these geographical ideas had real tangible effects on people living on the ground. The third reason that all of this is important is because it helps elucidate an important historiographical debate about the vagueness of the Magistan demand. Uh, Aisha Jalal, in particular, has argued influentially that uh, Jinnah, quote, deliberately kept the demand for Pakistan vague and its territories undefined. And this debate has implications for understanding Pakistan today. Uh, do the challenges facing present-day Pakistan stem from what Salman Rushdie has called its insufficiently imagined origins? So what I'm hoping to do is add some nuance to this historiographical debate. Um, 
this and really this is not so much a debate as a consensus actually that the Pakistan demand was vague I want to challenge some aspects of that consensus and here um, I follow uh, Venkat uh, Dulipala who's argued recently um, that in some ways Pakistan was actually clearly defined even down as we will see to the level of district boundaries but in other ways the call for Pakistan was absolutely extremely vague um, particularly in political terms, where the call for a, a state was very unclear. What kind of state was envisioned? Would it be a federal state? Would it be a somewhat autonomous state? Would it be a completely sovereign, independent state? This was left, many historians agree, intentionally unclear. So um, part of what I'm arguing is that a certain level of geographic specificity coexisted with political and other forms of ambiguity. So there's a strange combination here of specificity and ambiguity. And this turned out to be a fatal combination, literally physically fatal for hundreds of thousands of people, um, in large part because this ambiguity <clears throat> allowed all of the major parties, and there's a lot of blame to go around here, the British, uh, the Muslim League, the Indian National Congress in particular, allowed all major parties to disregard the crucial issue of migration, of what the demographic effects of partition would be. And this happened even though the geographic description, sorry, the geographic discussion of what Pakistan would mean was specific enough to show clearly that any division was going to leave significant minority populations on the so-called wrong side of the line. So in other words, this is where I'm pushing back at this historiographical consensus about Pakistan's vagueness. I would say that the violence of 1947 had less to do with a lack of imagination uh, than it had to do with the collision of conflicting, detailed visions of what Pakistani territory or, or broad, more broadly South Asian territory would look like. The 1940 Lahore Resolution is often considered the starting point for um, Muslim League calls to create an independent Muslim state. But in fact, uh, the League's history with this idea goes back uh, at least a decade earlier. Um, the League's first public discussion of a separate Muslim state and what it might look like came in 1930 uh, when uh, the poet politician, philosopher Muhammad Iqbal gave a presidential address to the League that laid out um, a brief, but in some ways quite territorially specific vision of what a Muslim state might look like. And I say in some ways specific but he, because he actually specified um, territorial adjustments that might be made in existing provincial boundaries uh, in order to reduce the size of Hindu and Sikh minorities in this Muslim state uh, to make the new state, quote, more Muslim in population. That said, Iqbal's proposal focused on Northwest India only. It had nothing to say about Northeast India, about Bengal, or what is today uh, Bangladesh. Um, what Iqbal actually meant by state was unclear. This is the issue I referred to before. What kind of state are we talking about? A state like Massachusetts, or a state like the United States, or something in between? Uh, at the time, the Muslim League was primarily focused on other issues, and so not much came of this 1930 proposal. 
And for the rest of the 1930s, the most important figure pushing the Pakistan idea was a man named Chaudhary Rahmat Ali, um, who's actually very much uh, at odds with the Muslim League and its leadership. Uh, Rahmat Ali is the man who coined the term Pakistan. Uh, he was also someone who was very aware of the power of maps. He issued I'm not sure, 12 or 15 pamphlets that called for various versions of a Muslim homeland, and each of them was decorated with a color map. This is one example. Um, because he, he understood the power of maps to attract attention and to, to spark the imagination. Rahmat Ali also foresaw what later came to be known as the hostage theory. Uh, and the hostage theory is, is going to be a, a red thread that I'm going to follow through the rest of this discussion. But the hostage theory held that the migration of religious minorities could be avoided because the safety of one state's minority population would be guaranteed by the presence of, a, of its co-religionists as a minority population across the boundary in the other states. The Muslim League never acknowledged uh, Rahmat Ali's influence, but in fact, it had a tremendous shaping effect on the Muslim League's own statements, both the, the substance of the ideas of those statements and, in a number of cases, the actual wording of um, Muslim League speeches and publications on the idea. And this included the hostage theory the idea that each government would be compelled to protect its own minorities for fear that if it did not, minorities across the boundary would suffer. In 1940, uh, the League issued its Lahore Resolution, which famously demanded, quote, that geographically contiguous units are demarcated into regions which should be so constituted with such territorial readjustments as may be necessary that the areas in which Muslims are numerically in a majority, as in the northwestern and eastern zones of India, should be grouped to constitute independent states, in which the constituent units shall be autonomous and sovereign. So this statement is, is still fairly vague. Um, notably, it did not include the term Pakistan, which the League did not officially adopt until 1942, although this 1940 resolution is sometimes referred to as the, the Pakistan Resolution. It certainly did not include any maps. And in fact, the Muslim League, I would speculate, although it's hard to find a specific source on this, I would speculate intentionally chose not to use maps. So in the 19, early, early 1940s, cartographic images were more commonly used to express criticism of the Lahore Resolution and the Mahagastan idea um, than to explain or support the call for uh, a Muslim state. And this is um, it's a little, probably a little bit hard to see because the quality is not so good, but this is a political cartoon from uh, a pro-Congress, a pro-INC newspaper that shows Jinnah, the figure standing in the very dapper Western-style suit, um, with a large knife in his hand, uh, prepared to, to slice a globe. And the part of the globe that we can see has India in, in big letters. Uh, and around the table, there's a whole bunch of people who represent the various parties. So we have Hindus, we have Sikhs, we also have untouchables, we have Dravids, we have opportunists, and we have nobodies, all reaching out eagerly with empty plates, hoping for a slice 
of this global pie that Jenna is cutting up. In fact, the first Muslim League map that I have found dates from 1944, so a full four years after the Lahore Resolution. Uh, if anyone has leads on other maps, I would be delighted to hear them. So if you can prove me wrong on that date, more power to you. The influential cartographic historian Brian Harley um, wrote, quote, silence can reveal as much as it conceals. Harley's focus was on blank space on the map. You might think here of Joseph Conrad and this classic colonialist framing of blank space on the map as, as being inviting, as inviting colonial uh, conquest. In this case, I would argue that the Muslim League's lack of maps is another form of cartographic silence. Despite building on Rahmat Ali's work in many, many ways, the League did not adopt his emphasis on maps. And this relates to the argument that the Pakistan demand was vague. Uh, as Yasmin Khan has written, uh, quote, the strength of the appeal of Pakistan was in its evocation of many contradictory ideas from utopian dreams to hard material calculus. For many of us, maps imply precision and clarity even if this implication is really much more of a mirage than an actual fact. Um, but maps that suggested a precise definition of what Pakistan would look like could potentially alienate supporters, in particular those who would be left out, whose homes would be left out of whatever territory was included in the, the new Muslim state. So the Lahore Resolution, which you'll remember included a promise of territorial adjustments, was calculated to appeal to a wide audience of Muslims. It was calculated to allow as many Muslims as possible to believe that they could be included in this new homeland. So in other words, the, the wording of the Lahore Resolution encompassed a, a wide range of possibilities such a wide range that they couldn't be reduced to a single map. And we can understand the Muslim League's choice not to use maps if we look at Ramat Ali's own maps. Uh, Ramat Ali had, had an absolutely overflowing cartographic imagination. Through the 1930s and 1940s, his vision of Muslim homelands, plural, expanded. By 1945, um, this is the uh, cover image of his 1945 pamphlet. Uh, that imagination had expanded to include 10 Muslim homelands and four strategic island claims. Uh, and the great Pakistani historian K.K. Aziz has written that uh, Ramat Ali's imagination sometimes extended to, quote, impossible sovereignties, artificial frontiers, and impracticable transfers of population. So the Muslim League, as a political party, couldn't afford to alienate potential followers with these wild flights of fancy. So as I say, the League did not publish maps through the early 1940s, uh, but it was willing to provide fairly specific textual boundary descriptions. In 1942, Jinnah recruited a journalist, a man named uh, M.S. Tusi, who had written completely independently, prolifically and positively about the Pakistan idea. 
uh, and Jenna paid him to publish two books on the subject. These books included no maps, but they did define Pakistan in detail, down to the level of districts to be added or subtracted from the provinces of Punjab and Bengal. So, so these books published under Jinnah's direction, Jinnah even selected the titles. He actually had the titles for these two books pre-selected uh, when he recruited Tusi. Are, are, are sort of demi-official expression of the Muslim League's views. Jinnah also wrote the foreword to these books and, and the foreword at the same time demonstrates the value that Jinnah placed on ambiguity because um, even after, as I say, choosing the titles, picking the author, arranging for the book's publication, writing the foreword, he wrote, quote, of course, the views expressed in these books are of the author and not the official views of the Muslim League or myself. So here we see Jinnah managing to be vague and specific simultaneously. And I think this is a reflection of the Muslim League's need for a symbol that could rally followers who spanned economic, political, geographic, sectarian, and other divisions. There's an extensive literature on reactions to the Pakistan idea, and one of the really notable themes is that critics of this idea often used bodily terms to express their opposition. Uh, the Hindu Mahasabha, which had an explicit, explicitly Hindu vision of nationalism, saw partition as an attack on the body of Mother India. Uh, other critics described partition, as I've said, as an amputation or vivisection. And Gandhi, in particular, um, combined these two themes, condemning partition as, quote, the vivisection of the motherland. So all of this meant that by 1947, by the time partition actually took place, there was in Indian public discourse a well-established connection between territory and the body, in particular the female body. And this connection had implications for the bodies of real women. Now, the British had resisted engaging with the Muslim League, resisted even talking about the idea of partition for years and years, um, in part because they hoped to leave India united. And I can talk about this during the Q&A if you're interested. This had to do with colonial conceptions of, of the British accomplishment in uniting South Asia. So the British didn't give any serious attention to territorial issues until June of 1947 itself. This was after the actual division had been scheduled for the 15th of August, 1947. And in June of 1947, the Viceroy, Lord Louis Mountbatten, and the South Asian leaders of the interim government, who included Jinnah, um, Likhar Ali Khan, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, Sardar Patel, and Baldev Singh, devised a plan to put together a boundary commission. Uh, to be composed of representatives from the INC party and from the Muslim League. Uh, these representatives were to be Indian justices, men with legal experience. There had, before this point, been some discussion of having a, a UN commission come in, and, and Jinnah had been in favor of the UN idea. So he somewhat reluctantly agreed to the uh, Indian lawyers idea, noting that, quote, he had wanted, if possible, to avoid lawyers. There was always trouble when two or more lawyers got together. 
Now, this is, Jenna is the most eminent lawyer, saying this to a room full of lawyers. Pretty much every single nationalist leader to a man was a lawyer. So I think among other things, this suggests that Jenna had a somewhat better sense of humor than he's popularly credited with. So this was the format that was agreed upon. There were actually two commissions, one for Bengal, one for Punjab. Uh, and each consisted of two representatives from the Muslim League and two from the INC. Their task was to hold hearings in Bengal and in Punjab to allow interested parties to state their case uh, as to where the boundary should fall. And the chair of each was a British lawyer named Cyril Radcliffe, who had never been to India and had no experience in drawing boundaries, but was a highly regarded, any guesses? Lawyer. Uh, in fact, regarded as, as one of the finest legal minds of his generation in, in Britain. Um, which I think is significant. Certainly, um, all of the leaders involved seem to have wanted um, a lawyer with a sterling reputation to head this committee. But Radcliffe wasn't just a lawyer. He was also a staunch supporter of British imperialism um, and of the British establishment. In fact, the, the one full-length biography of him that we have is actually titled The Great and the Good, a biography of Lord Radcliffe. Um, Radcliffe arrived in India in early July. So this is the month before partition is actually to take place, which meant that the timeline was very short. So short that the two committees, the Punjab committee and the Bengal committee, had to meet concurrently. So Radcliffe decided that since he couldn't attend the hearings of both, he would attend neither, and he had the transcripts air-mailed air to him in Delhi uh, every day. Uh, in early August, Radcliffe met with the members of the two commissions to hear their advice, and then closed himself up in a bungalow on the viceregal estate in Delhi with a bunch of maps and drew a line through each province. Now, as we've seen from um, the earlier discussion of, of Muslim League cartography, when the time came to actually draw a boundary line between India and Pakistan, there wasn't very much in the way of Muslim League endorsed maps, and certainly nothing on a large scale, nothing on the scale large enough to actually be helpful in drawing a boundary. In fact, there wasn't really supporting material of any kind when, when the head of the Muslim League team, uh, incidentally, Zafrullah Khan, another very eminent lawyer um, who went on to be foreign secretary of Pakistan, um, when Zafrullah Khan um, arrived in Lahore to prepare the case to um, argue before the Punjab Boundary Commission as to where exactly the line should fall, he found that the Muslim League had not quote, prepared any plan or collected any material or done anything in this direction. Um, and I will note that this certainly goes some way to support the argument that the Muslim League had very little interest in fleshing out the Pakistan idea.